This is God with us, part two, and, and the title of this sharing is The Son of Man. So, as I, as I told you last week, we're, we're the, the territory we're heading is Jesus' declaration to his detractors in John 10, verse 30, where he says, point blank, I and the Father are one. And in moving toward that, you know, their response to that was, well, they picked up rocks to stone him. So I, I, have, I have sat under Bible teachers and, and read commentaries, both from what I call cul-de-sacs of Christianity, say Unitarian cults, those who don't believe in the divinity of Christ, and even those who do, who kind of skirt around this or, or, or work inside of this territory and don't read it for what it says. They deeply, deeply humanize his, um, his statement. Sometimes on the level of just being, you know, uh, to use our common vernacular, you know, God and I are on the same page. You know, yeah. You know, God and I are on the same page here. And um, though I might admit that saying you're on the same page with God uh, can be kind of bold, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address saying, you know, both sides pray to the same God. Basically asking for him to be on our side, and I'm paraphrasing Lincoln here, and he's like, "We got the wrong idea. We got to make sure we're on his side." Mm -hmm. So I mean, to say that you know you and God are on the same page might be uh, might be considered uh, extreme hubris, but worth a stoning, you know? Where he leads, they'll follow. Uh, yeah, yeah, that kind of a deal. Yeah. So, so this is the ground we're heading, and where Jesus goes with it is even though we have. In, in the experience of this church, um, and I could speak for this church uh, more than any other because I have most experience with it, we have been exposed to facets of this, but perhaps not in, in the view or in the, in the I don't want to say total view because I can't be exhaustive. I can be exhausting, but I can't be exhausted. <laughs> and, and so where he goes in this territory Really, um, I'm beginning to appreciate more and more and more, because I've taken a deeper, deeper dive into this in the past two months. Uh, it, it, it really rips a lot of veil off of Scripture. And, and this is what Jesus does. He's a revealer, not a concealer, unless you just don't want to believe, in which case a lot of what he says can be quite confusing. <laughs> so this is the ground we're heading. And so, in, in building up to that, we were reviewing the context, the immediate context, inside the Gospel of John, um, going all the way back to his interface with, with uh, some of the Judeans who uh, were debating with him, some of the Pharisees, and his, his declarations of divinity as he's walking toward this confrontation, in, um, or running headlong, or pushing the fight, however you want to envision it, he's not skirting the issue is what I'm saying. His declarations of divinity. And so he declared in John 8.56 that Abraham, you know, rejoiced to see my... He saw it. Abraham saw it and was glad. Abraham saw my day and he was glad. And uh, we went back into Genesis 15, 1-5, how the word of Yahweh came to Abraham. And we saw all the various ways that this wasn't just a, um, an allegory. This wasn't just, you know, 
Abraham heard an audible voice in his ear, or he had an inner witness as to what he thought he should do to his father's idols. That was extra biblical. Sorry. Um, uh, you know, this this was the embodied uh, Yahweh referred to as His Word, and we saw that it it um, He saw it. He he uh, it took him outside. You know, there's there's clear what is called anthropomorphic language, you know? Um, language that humanizes, puts in human form, uh, God. Okay? And this is the language used in God's conversation with Abraham when he walks him outside and he says, Count the stars if you can, so shall, so shall your children be. Right? And John and writing his gospel, carries this idea of the embodied word. Yahweh's thought. <laughs> Yahweh's communication. Um, walking around in a tangible form, a material form, he carries it to its extent in beginning to reveal the great mystery of godliness, the incarnation of the Word of God. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt or tabernacled among us. So the extreme telegraphing of, of the language of the biblical writers and um, here's a new phrase for you, the biblical assemblers, uh, the final form of what we call the canon, a process that took um, maybe 15 centuries or so <laughs> to, to come to what we call the Holy Bible this telegraphing, this um, theology that the Holy Spirit continues to broadcast of God Almighty living with His family. The Word of God. Hello, Genesis 15. Came man and tabernacled. Oh, tabernacled, by the way. You know that thing that I had the children of Israel, when I called them out of Egypt and called them my son, and I said, build this structure that I would live with you in your camp. This, this tent that David was dissatisfied with, thinking it was not enough for me, and said, I'll make him a palace. And I said, okay, I never asked for a palace, and it's kind of a cool idea, but you don't get to do it, your son gets to do it, and I will live there. This temple that had the tabernacle inside it, they moved the tabernacle inside the temple, this temple that Ezekiel saw all the way from Babylon while the, whole, while the, while the Lord took him in the Holy Spirit to see what was going on before the final um, removal of Judah and exile of Judah, this, uh, this temple where he saw the glory of the Lord begin to lift and depart. This language is all in John 1.14. Mm. This telegraphing of God with us. God in human form. God bringing His communication. Abraham saw Jesus' day. He saw it and was glad. And then he says, he said, you're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And, and so he's like, okay, my bad. You misunderstood what I'm saying. No, he just kind of like doubles down. Before, as one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture, before Abraham was. 
I am. Okay. I, it is just <laughs> yeah. powerful. It, yeah, boom. You know, I mean, he just pulls them both out. Deal with that. I'm not backing away from who I am. I'm not hiding as he as he. I, I, well, I'm not going to tell you what you want yeah, to hear. These things were not done in a corner. I can't remember if that was Paul or if that was Peter or if that was Jesus. You know, I mean, <laughs> see, we didn't do this in hiding. Okay? Before Abraham was, I am. And we looked at this I am language where the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And again, we saw the conflation in the language of it's it's Yahweh, it's the Lord, but it's it's the angel of the Lord, but they're they're there, they're they're one and the same, but they're different. And this understanding of the invisible God having to condescend to his creatures who cannot appreciate, apprehend, or understand his full glory and brightness. As he told Moses, I'll hide you. You can see my back, but you can't, you can't see my glory and live. I didn't make you to see all that in your present form. You can't take it. He's got to do something to get into a place where he can communicate with his creatures. This is all according to the plan of God. And they have this conversation. And Moses trained in all the arts of the Egyptian and understanding Egyptian magic arts figures, okay, I need a name. <laughs> this is how we relate to divinity. This is how I control results from the spirit realm. You give me your name, and uh, um, then we can talk. And basically the Lord says, well, I know your name. Well, what's your name? Well, you, you know, if I go to them, they're going to ask me what your name is. And God says, <sighs> you tell him, you tell them that the... <sighs> The ineffable name, Y-H-W-H. The self-existent one. I am who I am. You tell them, the I am sent you. The is, was, will be. The self-existent eternity one. The one, I am. Is it Y-A-W-H? Is that where we call Yahweh? We say, we, we say Yahweh now, Jehovah... We get Jehovah by taking the vowel sounds of Lord, Adonai, and inserting them into the tetragrammaton. <laughs> That's the fancy word for that four-letter uh, name for, for God. So in, in Jewish piety... In, have I lost anything? No, I'm just asking All if right. you got this. <laughs> in, in, in Jewish piety, and, and in, and in, uh, it was... You know, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And in a way um, to, to really uh, withhold oneself, which means, you know, don't represent God falsely, basically. But in, in observance of not even tripping over that is to not even say his name. And so when they would read scripture and, and that form, those four letters in Hebrew would show up, someone reading scripture out loud would say, Lord, Adonai, or they would just say, ha, um, Hashem, the name. And then, Hashem, the name. And even God, in Scripture, uses Hashem, the name, as a representation, as a self-reference. The name is Him. It's not a magic formula. 
in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, is not a magic formula. It's not abracadabra and the door opens. It is, I am here with the presence and authority of Jesus in me to do this thing he commissioned me to do. That's what it means. That's what it is. Now, it helps us to say it, to remind us, you know, like, in the name of the law, open the door, you know, you know but hey, um, it's not, a, you know, that's not a magic phrase either. It's the authority of legal representatives to come in and burst through the door, right? You got me? So, you tell them, I am has sent me to you. Okay, so uh, we probably won't get to that connection today, but um, Lord willing, when we do, remind me, okay? <laughs> I am has sent me to you. That's in Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15. And then we saw again how the angel of the Lord, it was, it was Yahweh that appeared in the bush, but it was the angel of the Lord that appeared in the bush, and then uh, that it was the angel that delivered them out of Egypt. We saw that Yahweh delivered them out of Egypt, and then the angel delivered them out of Egypt. And if you follow this through, you'll see that the name delivered them, and you'll also see that the presence of God delivered them. These things, and then when they rebel, um, in retrospect, prophets said that you, you pushed back, you rejected His Holy Spirit. And again, con conflating, not the same, but the same. The invisible God, Yahweh. The visible God, the angel of the Lord. And His Holy Spirit. These were things that were known. These were things that were embraced in, um, in, Israel, in, in Yahweh worship. In Yahweh worship. And I, I used to, I'll use the word Jewish for communication uh, purposes. But this was Orthodox Judaism up into the first century. Okay? And then he heals the man born blind, John 9, which we saw was a creative act. Remember, out of the dust of the ground, uh, the Lord formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And, and uh, in Isaiah 64, 8, that God is the potter and we are the clay. We are all the works of your hands. We saw from the Dead Sea Scrolls that man is nothing but spittle and clay that God put together. And here, Jesus walks up to a man born blind who he declares was born that way so God might show his glory and he anoints his eyes with spittle and mud and he comes away seeing. And, and so here we have the irony of a man born blind healed by Jesus who understands what has transpired. In other words, his spiritual eyes are open how could this man do this kind of a thing? Who ever heard of anybody opening the eyes of a man born blind? And, and he's talking to spiritual leaders who can't see it, and it's right in front of their nose. They're blind spiritually. They're blind spiritually. And so this, this irony plays out in Jesus' rhetoric as he speaks to the Pharisees, as he speaks to the Jews. You know, well, now that you say you can see then you're blind. Because if you could see, you would see me, but you don't. But this blind guy, he saw me and now he sees. So, where we left off was John 9, 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. And so even his own parents were afraid to own him in terms of this testimony. Can you imagine how, how deeply seated the societal, the peer pressure, the societal fear is that when your child has suffered through life with a debility and has come away delivered, that you cannot give full witness to this deliverance. Well, yeah, he was born blind. Uh, yeah, he's, but how he can see now, we can't tell you. You well, Yeah, the text, and the text alludes to the fact that they're well aware of it, how it is he can see, but that the synagogue leaders had put out that if anyone talked good about Jesus, then you don't get, you don't get to go to synagogue. You are, you are outside of the community. Yes, sir. Yeah, cast out. Now, in a church-hopping world, that may not sound like much. But if you've ever been in a cult and kicked out, you know the feeling of that. <laughs> you know, if you've ever spent your life side-by-side um, -side with people embracing a particular truth that nobody around you can quite see or quite believe, and you behave in different ways, and then all of a sudden the community decides... You're not kosher anymore, and you cannot talk with us, you cannot eat with us, you cannot... No, we won't even walk on the same side of the street you will. And so his parents disowned him in that sense. They would not... And, but here is this man, been a beggar his whole life, sees finally one day miraculously, and yet the thing of it is, this, this level of theology, this level of understanding of God doesn't come in a flash of lightning. I've not experienced that in people. You know, I've experienced sometimes the opposite, where people who should have had deep roots in Scripture encounter a, a, just a bump in the road in life, and all of a sudden all of faith is chucked out the window. How dare God? Why God? Why me? Can I believe the whole... I can't believe this happened. You know, boom! They all fall apart. But here's a man who's dealt with debility his whole life and in the face of multiple interrogations and multiple pressure doesn't back down from the fact that God delivered him and furthermore the agent of his deliverance had to be a righteous man. How else could it have happened? And he was sarcastic with him, which is good. Yeah. So, Very good. He, he's, the, the implication here is as though physically blind he could see. Physically blind, he could see. And they, those seeing, were spiritually blind. And they throw him out. And I love this. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Just think about the intent of that for a minute. Think about where they are. Now, that takes effort. And I know um, it, it can be one of these things where you gloss over it and it's like, well, yeah, he's Jesus. You know, he is God among us. Doesn't he know everything? You know, I mean, all he had to do was put his hand up and have that silly trance face on and he knows exactly where um, this man born blind is. 
But the incarnation is nothing if Jesus, if the Son of God doesn't embrace our full humanity. And we know he did. We knew he grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. That meant he had to learn. If he had to learn, that meant he wasn't. He had. Um, he didn't know everything. He didn't know everything. Omniscience was a quality of the Almighty that he had laid down in his humility to save us. He didn't know everything. So to find him, there's implication of intentionality. And when he finds him, he asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Reminds me of a joke we used to tell. Mary says, Why can't you be perfect like your brother Jesus? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, that boy never does anything wrong. Um, yeah, so... So it's like we're hearing a conversation or that, that we're not inside the joke. I mean, if, if you walk into this and you have no scriptural background, this is a man who's experienced a miracle. He got mud put in his eye and told to go wash. He's never seen Jesus. He's never seen him. In the whole conversation of his interrogations, no one's asking him, well, do you believe the person who healed you is the Messiah? No one's asked him, did the Son of Man heal you? Nobody asked him that. And yet Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this man says, who is he? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Who is he? They're talking about somebody, they, they, they're talking about a subject matter that they're both familiar with. Okay? Now, today when we go street witnessing um, in, a, in, in a culture that's been saturated with the gospel for uh, centuries, and we ask someone, do you believe in Jesus? When's the last time you asked somebody that question and they said, who's Jesus? I've never heard of Jesus in this culture. I don't think that's ever happened. I, it's never happened to me in this culture. I don't know if it's ever happened to me in life. I mean, there are people. There are people who just completely go, well, what are you talking yeah. about? I have no idea. Right? Yeah, they usually have some idea of him that's completely wrong. True, but I mean, they're familiar, right? <laughs> right, right. They're, they're, they're familiar with so the term. A white guy with an even whiter robe and a red sash. And yeah. Goes around smiling at people most of the time. So, <laughs> so the illustration is to say, in this culture, if, 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 if we went up to somebody and said, do you believe in Jesus? Uh, generally speaking, we both kind of know who we're referring to in some general sense, right? Yep. Okay. Well, same here. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And, and, and well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Okay? So that there's plenty that we're not told in the text, yeah. and, but we're free to use our minds. You know, we could stick to the text, but just think the thing through. And so if Jesus finds him, um, I would imagine there was some form of conversation. You know? Hey, uh, remember the mud? <laughs> I'm the guy, you okay? <laughs> Who's the son of the... Anyhow, I don't know. But yeah, so... I, I, I would think that if he does recognize his voice, he doesn't correlate the man who healed him with this son of man figure. Definitely that, yeah. Yeah. So who is this son of man? Yeah, but isn't that the way... It, I mean, you think about the guys on the road to Emmaus. I mean, they 
talked with him all day and yeah, had yeah. no clue until the, the right until he revealed himself. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's after so, the resurrection. Right. Yeah. So um, to understand the phrase, we need to look at it in the Old Testament, and we need. So, so a, 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 common, a common phrase, I've used it plenty of times myself, that in terms of hermeneutics or interpreting Scripture, is that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You've heard that before. I've used that before. And, and there's some truth to it, but I, I am beginning to find that, that it's... It, it's not the best way to put it. Well, because the opposite is true too. Right, and and the other way I've said it is is that in the old in, in the old covenant times, people wrote books, and in the New Testament, they wrote ma magazine articles about the books. Okay. Now, now that's that's closer to to what I'm beginning to embrace as a, as a better understanding of the testaments, is that. A reading of the Old Testament should inform our understanding of the New. We shouldn't we shouldn't take um, we shouldn't force the Old Testament to fit our, our our concept or preconceptions about the New. We should use the Old Testament to inform what our concept should be about the New. Another way of saying this is, is that the New Testament is a spirit-inspired commentary on the Old Testament. The scriptures that they were dealing with were the Old Testament. Quite often, I'll be reading the New Testament, and the New Testament will refer to something in the Old Testament that wasn't made clear to me in the Old Testament, but... Right. It gives me new information of what it meant in the Old Testament, right. and that is, you know, that's so awesome because it takes away the guessing of what you thought that might have meant or could have meant two or three things. But there in the New Testament, the the writer or the Holy Spirit is saying that that meant such and such or means this. You know, it, it's just it's awesome. It just makes things where you you got it. It's there. It's, you can't get out of it. Right. That that particular you no. Know. Yes. Yes. And and that's and that is a functionality of them. Isn't it also prophetic? You know, like it's it was revealed in the Old Testament, but more obscure, and then it was revealed more in the light, if you would, in the New Testament. So but yes. It's still there. That that's that's a yes. So, um, the. In the communication of his heart, God, as the is, was, will be, speaks in, in those time frames. So the revelations, much of the revelation of Scripture is to people in that day. Like, for instance, what we call 1 Corinthians, its primary purpose was communication in the first century from Saul of Tarsus to a congregation he had planted in Corinth. That's what it is, and that's what it did. It communicated particular situations that were happening in that place at that time. And it has eternal import because it's the Word of God and applies to our behavior today. right? So all of that's true. Um, my concern with Old Testament revealed and concealed is that it may inadvertently cause a mental barrier to appreciate 
what it is that the Old Testament is saying that New Testament writers and New Testament personages are broadcasting like with a bullhorn and we're just kind of deaf to it because we've we've been taught a different system or a different theology. So particularly regarding the new rewritten rules of what it means to be an Israelite or a Jew as they take the hand and the glove that fits so perfectly in Jesus Christ and chopped off fingers and knots in it and everything else they could do to try to make it not fit anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of like scramble the egg. Right. <laughs> For me, it's it's exciting, though, when you're reading in either the New Testament or the Old Testament, and all of a sudden you get the revelation of the connection. It's right. just like, absolutely. Yeah, oh, abso absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, I, I'm so not, and, and what I'm saying, I'm not saying that that Daniel. the New Testament doesn't un unveil things. It does. Oh, yeah. But but the manner in which it does is deeply, deeply structured and informed by all that God revealed before. Yeah. So here's the Son of Man in the Old Testament. Um, it speaks of humanness in Old Testament poetic parallelism. So you know what parallelism is, right? We, you know... God says something one way, and then he says it again another way, and these two things are equated, you know? Understanding and wisdom, things like this. I mean, it's just, there's scripture, particularly wisdom scripture, is rife with it, with parallelism. And uh, examples of this would be like Numbers 23.19 and Psalm 8.4. So, Numbers 23.19, you're, you're very familiar with it, but, but catch the contrast here. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. So that son of man use is just again emphasizing humanness, humankind, right? God is not human. Uh, he has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Okay. Here out of Psalm 8.4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So, I mean, there, there are multiple instances of this in the Old Testament, and the Son of Man phrase is always in the second half of the parallelism. You know, this lets you know that this is, and, and I mean, you know, to kind of open up a little bit of a rabbit hole, um, not, not every, in Scripture, not every person born of a woman was a Son of Man. <laughs> Genesis 6, anybody. <laughs> right? So... Um, any of it. The phrase is used 93 times in Ezekiel and refers to the prophet's humanity. That's what this, you know, son of man means. Hey, human. <laughs> I want to say something. So I, I want to just take some time. You're, you're familiar with Ezekiel 1. But I just want to read it with you so, so that we can get the import of how this Son of Man line lands, okay? So, Ezekiel, and you could, I mean, it's 93 times, there's plenty of examples. Ezekiel 1 and verse 4 is where I, where I start. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. And each of them had four wings. And their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. 
Verse 8. Under their wings and on their four sides they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. For as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, and each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. So here are these spiritual beings. They've got two wings with which they are being modest, and two wings with which they are flying. They have four faces. This is like they have calf's feet. This is, this is some bizarre mythology type stuff what's going this iconography this is is stitched woven carved painted all through the tabernacle and the temple okay these throne guardians verse 13 as for the likeness of other creatures their appearance was like burning coals of fire like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures and the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning. So, I mean, there's all this light description and, and flowing fluid fire, you know, like a torch. And, you know, it's like, this is what they look like. Verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads, when they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse of their head, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had appeared of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Oh. I was just like, ah! Oh! <laughs> you know, we got spirit beings in the cloud of glory, right? Sounded like... Like God touched down. Uh-huh. Boom. It's a supernatural thunderstorm. The whirlwind, as the King James calls it, right? You have fantastical chimeric creatures with wings and lion faces and eagle faces and ox faces and man faces. And, and they got fiery wheels. And, and then you have the Almighty enthroned in, a, in sapphire in human form, shining like fire. And His voice comes out. And he says to me, son of man, catch the, catch the difference there? Son of man, stand on your feet. I will speak with you. That's still small voice. 
I am God. You are man. <laughs> Son of man, stand on your feet and I will talk to you. You just... The spirit realm... Way, 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 way different than our realm. And spirit beings of this nature are way different than human beings in our dust nature. He adjusted himself to us. Yes, he adjusted himself to us. Intentionally when he created us. That's awesome. Because he created us with redemption built in. There is no redemption for fallen angels. There is no redemption for fallen divine creatures. And by divine, I mean celestial beings. Not divine as in um, the God, but divine as in God-like, lower G. Okay? So, all this vision, and this vision is very common. I say common. Um, in, 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 in the call of the prophets, where the prophet is brought into the throne room into what Scripture calls the divine counsel of God, to hear the word of the Lord. And yet you see all of this fantastic appearance of God, and, his, and Ezekiel rightfully gets on his face, and God says, Son of man. So every time he refers to him, Son of man, Son of man, Son of man, Son of man, it's a reminder, I'm the potter, you're the clay. I'm the potter. You're the clay. So how, how do we, you know, how do, how do we get back to Jesus and he says... I have to go to the next slide. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, a, there's a, about this much of that story in the burning bush where, where he's taken off his sandals and yes. with the, the unquenchable flame. Yep. Yes. Just a taste of Just it. Just a taste of it. But then when he carries the 70 elders up into the mountain, he sees God enthroned and they yep. eat before the elders of God. Wow. And, and they're in front of the divine council on a mountain. And okay? Elijah and Elijah. Yeah. 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 And I'm telling you, once you start seeing this in Scripture, you start seeing it everywhere. Praise Jesus. So, um, so in the, in the Old Testament, it speaks of humanness and poetic parallelism. It's a phrase used 93 times in Ezekiel and refers to the prophet's humanity. We saw that. Jesus uses it as a self-reference. But speaking of himself, the Son of Man yes. shall be, you know, whatever, the Son of Man. So it's a, it's a self-reference. He uses it to describe this, his, his authority in earthly ministry. That you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Does, does this become, like, cohesive, like, jello? In, in, like, yeah, but not, not a round jello mold, because as we've talked before, you... That's an inside joke, yeah. <laughs> so, but, but, yeah, so, I'm like, he... So, we are son of man. You know, Narnia-like yes. in the reference as well. Yes. But, um, but he is the son of son man, of man mm -hmm. and we are all in him. Yes. So in the end, in the Son of Man, is that kind of how it all comes together? Um, it, yes, and, yes, and, yes and not quite, okay. but yes. So it's, he uses it as a self-reference. He calls himself the Son of Man. And, and, it, and all of these understanding that it is a claim to humanity. 
humanness. Uh, that, okay. Okay? Yes. Right? Yeah. So I, he's he's making it very clear that, he's yeah. the penultimate. that I am the penultimate human. Right. And, and he had to be a man in order to redeem yes. mankind. Correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, legally, yeah. No, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he uses it to describe his authority in earthly ministries, I've illustrated. He, uh, he uses it to anticipate his suffering and death. But if the Son of Man be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. There's a, you know. And he uses it to anticipate his future exaltation and glory. And this brings us to Daniel 7. At which point in time I have to bore you with some history. Oh, man. So, um, under... Understand that at the close of the Hebrew canon, you know, which um, for for the Jews became Second Chronicles, um, for for Christians it is Malachi. Okay, just same books, just in a different order. Okay, and you had four centuries, four centuries of culture and life and thought, and writing, and observance, and of, of diaspora, and uh, temple building, and all, all kinds of things. Just think, you know, what has transpired um, even in the English colonization of what we now call the United States of America in a scant 300 years. Christopher Columbus to the computer. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot can happen. And if, and if we endeavor to understand American culture by only reading writings from the late 18th century, we don't have a full picture. We don't have a clue. Right. And, and as a matter of fact, to a certain degree, we would be a bit more clueless on our own culture than if we didn't know that 18th century. But that being said, we would be deeply clueless about our culture if we did not understand those 17th and 18th century writings. Right? So in the same way, Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate word of God, came into time at a particular point in time and place to a particular culture, in a particular place, at God's design, God's sovereign design and timing and providence. He was born into a culture which spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the realm, and it came, it, it, was, a, it was a Syrian dialect. It was the Neo-Assyrian Empire, that made it the predominant language, its script form, its script form uh, comes from Phoenician. Uh, I believe Hebrew shares roots with the Phoenician script form as well. And it was the language that Jesus spoke, probably among several, uh, but it, it, it's, it was the primary language of the region. He, he spoke in a, Ga a Galilean dialect. Wasn't some of the Old Testament written in Aramaic? Oh, you know what? Some of the Old Testament was written in Aramaic, in particular, particular chapters in Daniel, and in particular, Daniel chapter 7 was written in Aramaic. Okay. The portions that were written in Hebrew, would that be as different from us as like reading French 
versus English or I, Latin. I I don't know I I don't know enough of the languages. Let's just let's just say they're so they're they're both Semitic languages. Uh-huh. Okay, Aramaic and and Hebrew are both Semitic languages. Well, French and Spanish. So. Um, yeah, I would. I, it, it might be more like um, like Spanish and Romanian, okay. you know, what, which is harder to work the translation out. Um, Spanish and Portuguese is easier. You either put marbles in your mouth or in your ear. Either way, you come out right. And then Italian, you can understand if you do this. Uh-huh. Um, so anyhow, <laughs> this is me romancing with language. Okay, sorry. Um, that was a bad joke. <laughs> All right, so that's Aramaic. That's just every consonant so, thrown in the word, you know. So, so listen, he, he is, so now we're talking about, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And in and first century Palestine, Levant, Israel, Daniel, and Daniel's apocalyptic prophecy was very popular and held in high esteem. Josephus, and writing his history uh, in the antiquity of the Jews, when he deals with Daniel and and, uh, um, Josephus, is book 10. Anyhow, he he talks about the esteem and how right Daniel was and how his forecast of the things they suffered under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was spot on. So we we know that, that Daniel 7... We know that Daniel 7 had wide traction. We know that Daniel, the book of Daniel, had wide traction. Uh, we know that Enoch, or what's referred to as, as one Enoch, which is not a canonical book of the Bible, also had huge influence on apocalyptic thought and understanding in Jewish thought. The section of Enoch that deals with the Son of Man its date is questionable. So I'm not even presenting that as, as evidence of his messianic title. But Daniel 7 is unequivocal. Daniel 7, verse 9. See if any of this sounds familiar to you. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Are you hearing Revelation 4 in your mind? 24 elders seated on thrones. This is the Divine Council throne room. This is God holding court. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and his wheels were burning fire. By the way, the wheels of God's throne are the cherubim. <laughs> that's, you know, that's just a shorthand reference to the whole cherubim affair, which is the throne, which is the chariot throne of God. Wheel and a wheel. Wheels within the wheels. Mm-hmm. The, so you're thinking about the cherubim. Okay, so the Ark of the Covenant had what on its cover? Angels. Cherubim, <laughs> cherubim and, the, and their wings touched each other. And then that thing was placed inside of the temple. And what was inside the temple? The Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. There were two giant olive wood cherubim I think covered in gold whose wings stretched both sides of the holies of holies and touched each other. And here you have four cherub in the holy of holies. By the way, Solomon had wheels built for, I believe, the ark. So, that's the chariot, right? 
A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So, um, if you've ever read a chick's track, you've gotten a comic book version of what is going on. And an oversimplified, I dare say, comic book version of what is going on. God has final decision-making authority. But think about, is God's nature consistent? Does His character alter? How does God operate within the church of Jesus Christ? Through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Do, do, um, is everything that we decide to do and do, is that all based on, on a direct edict? Thou shalt witness at this corner. Thou shalt have Bible study at 1030. Thou shalt build a big building of this size. And, no. No. You will have a mission to this country. How, how, how does God's kingdom move on the earth today? Is it, is it through human zombies? Or is it through interaction and co-laboring and cooperation? Yes. Yeah. But see, we're dealing with the same God. And God's judgment and God's throne room and God's execution is done in a judgment hall where in which He involves His divine family, the divine counsel, in decision-making and functioning. You see this all through Ezekiel. Angels with scribes. You see this... Even in David, where the angel of the Lord stands over Jerusalem with a sword in his hand. Mm. And if you thought that, that, that the, uh, the slayer in, the, in, in Exodus was the devil, you might need to take a second read on that. So, he's holding court. And look at the, the relation of the... Count the stars if you can. The stars of God. The inhabitants of the spirit realm are beyond our numbering capability. It's a lot bigger place than we think. The four faces of the cherubim point to the four cardinal directions of the ecliptic, of the zodiac. We're talking cosmology. We're talking universe. This is big, folks. Speaking about how many angels you can fit on the head of yeah, the pen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, this horn that lifted itself up in this revelation. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Well, why? See, because God stood in judgment and the books were opened. What was the result of God sitting in judgment and the books being opened? This beast was thrown down and killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. That God's providential hand through the course of human history, regardless of what we may think, regardless of what conspiracy may come, come the way, ultimately it's God in this throne room that directs the stream of time and the outcome of human history. He is the final authority. God is enthroned. 
Amen. Praise God and praise God for that. Amen. Amen. And I saw, verse 13, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. This is the cloud rider. The cloud, I saw God come from Timon, riding in a cloud. This is the cloud rider. Who rides the cloud? God Almighty rides the cloud. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. You see this scene. God seated in heaven and the Son of Man being brought forward and presented to him. And uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And. Pardon me. Verse 6. But one in a certain place testified saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. That's reflecting the Septuagint translation. You've made him a little lower than Elohim is the, is the Hebrew. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in, him, in that he put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Not yet. We saw that verse before, for a time and for a season, right? That these other kingdoms were going to be around. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, the King James says. In the midst of the assembly, I believe is, is a, a better way of saying that. Um, let me go to the ESV yes. here real quick. I have that in the New King James. You have what? The midst of the assembly is in the New King James. In the New King James, right. Um, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So in this vision, Daniel sees one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and being presented before him. In these verses quoted in the, in the epistle to the Hebrews, we have Jesus coming into the divine council, the assembly of the heavenly host, with us, saying, I'm not ashamed of my humanness. These are my brothers. Behold, me and all the children God has given me. You being presented to the divine council. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's just like... Thank you, Lord. Yeah. This is a hall to which you have citizenship. Heavenly Jerusalem. Zion. Daniel 7, 14. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, right? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. Amen. This is the Son of Man language. This is the understanding in John 9, verse 35, when Jesus had heard that they cast him out and found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man, this Messiah that's going to come, this Yahweh, visible? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking with you. What other reaction can you have? He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This is a God-fearing Jew. Who do you think he thinks he's worshipping? God. God. Amen? God. Oh, well, and we'll do part three. No. Yahweh. 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 We'll get there. Hallelujah. Awesome. Thank you, church. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.